if there's any kind of magic in this world, it must be in the attempt of understanding someone sharing something. episode number two of Dimed Out. I am Mal Foster and we as a collective unit, yes you, me and everyone else all together, we're going to be narrowing our focus on a particular film for this episode and as you can probably tell from the title, that film is in fact Lars von Trier's feature from the year 2000, Dancer in the Dark. Now this is by no means your grandpa's run-of-the-mill generic film review. Oh, no, 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 no. This is a little bit different. It's something that is going to allow us to go a little bit deeper and look at the film with a little bit more detail. It's a feature that I used to run on my film blog, Zinema Loco, called Keep or Delete. And the concept for this really is as simple and straightforward as the title suggests. I take a film that I've never, ever seen before. I sit down and I watch it for the first time and... I come to the decision to either keep it and preserve it in our dimed out film library archived forever or I decide that it's not worthy of being preserved and in fact it should probably just be wiped from the earth and cinematic existence for the rest of time. So, you know, one or the other. There's very little middle ground here. The way in which I come to this conclusion, the way that I actually arrive at making this ultimate decision with no take-backsies, is running through a series of scoring qualifications. It's what I call the five factors of judgment, and they are as follows. Narrative. How is the film's story? Is it complex? Is it layered? Does it take twists and turns? Does it engage you? Does it keep you interested? Does it keep you in a state of suspense? If the narrative's thin, how is it with symbolism? Does it have metaphors? Does it have things that really kind of take the place of a more complex storyline? Performance. Do I actually believe the people on screen? Do I actually buy into what they are projecting? Or is it just a case of looking at an ensemble of mannequins who have somehow managed to grow lips and move them? Is there a sense of synergy and chemistry between the cast? Is there a standout performance in particular? Aesthetic, and this is where we look at both the visual and audio aspect of the film. We look at the soundscape, the score, the sound work. We look at the cinematography, the colour palette, the costume, the set design. Everything that is audio or visual we're looking at in this section. Does it work? Does it fit with the story? Does it pop out? Is it just gorgeous? Is it engaging? Is it terrifying or is it just really bland? The fourth factor of judgment is direction. How does the director take the previous mentioned elements and combine them? And what happens when they do? How does this work compare to other stuff they've done? If they haven't done other stuff, how does it compare to other people's work? How does it compare to other films within the genre that are maybe following similar themes? What do they do that is different? What do they do that is unique to them? 
How have they shown growth from their own personal filmography? There's a lot of different things that go into this section, but it's really looking at how the director themselves perform. That's what we're looking at here. And the last factor of judgment, but by no means the least, is enjoyment. Because, let's be honest, there are plenty of films which fail in the previous four factors, but yet somehow are really enjoyable. Over the years, I have seen a number of films which have just failed spectacularly in terms of visuals, narrative, performance and direction. But yet somehow, some way, they are just absolute gems. The one that I'm thinking of and my go-to, the golden goose of terrible filmmaking that is somehow wonderful and just so enjoyable and charming and hilarious and magical is the one and only Tommy Wiseau's The Room. <laughs> what a story, Mark. So that is how we come to the all-important decision of whether we keep or delete a film. The only question we have left from this point on is Dancer in the Dark keep or delete? So there's a few things that I really should preface before we get into this. First and foremost is, obviously, if you haven't seen the film, there's going to be spoilers abound. So if it is on your to-watch list, I don't know, maybe you want to watch it now and then come back to this, or just not listen to this episode would maybe be an option. I mean, you should. You should listen to it. You should go and watch the film, and then you can come back and kind of see if you're in agreement with what I'm saying here. Uh, that would be what you should definitely do but just letting you know heads up and i mean it's it's fairly obvious but still i'm giving you the courtesy of letting you know spoilers for dancer in the dark are abound if you haven't seen the film and you are curious if you've never heard of the film before and you are curious to check it out i should also let you know that it's pretty dark and pretty dense in places so it really is up to you and your mood and your mindset. I know that a lot of people during lockdown, their film choices have been more lighthearted and fluffy and uplifting, and understandably so, considering everything that's happening. So yeah, if that's been your sort of MO in terms of what you've been watching lately, and you really don't want to dive into something that's a bit heavy and a bit sort of cerebral and just a bit weird, then, then yeah, you may want to give this one a skip. It's not exactly something you would want to chase up with after just having a Disney Plus marathon. When I so, yeah, Dancer in the Dark. Uh, I guess I should start by saying this is going to be the first of, I don't know how many yet, but it's going to be the first entry into our 20th anniversary Keep or Delete series. Because this film did come out in the year 2000, it is the concluding part of Lars von Trier's Golden Hearts trilogy, a series of films which really sum up my own personal history with Lars von Trier as both a filmmaker, and yeah, you can put air quotes around that, and as just a human being. So the Golden Trilogy starts off in 1996 with von Trier's film Breaking the Waves, which is about an oil rig worker who has an accident, is paralysed, and rather than deprive his suffering wife of moments of intimacy, he 
not only allows, but actively pushes and insists that she goes and sleeps with whoever the hell she wants. It becomes almost like his cuck mission to send his wife off into the beds of strangers. Yeah, it has been lauded by a number of people. Uh, so many people have put this film in their top films of the 90s list. I keep seeing people referring back to it and claiming it to be this this marvellous, sort of risque piece of cinema. And granted, there are moments that I do remember being kind of thought-provoking. But then I also just remember it being a bit of a turgid mess. Like someone had just shat the cinema bed and was making you look at it. Full disclosure, I should say that I have seen the film once and that was about eight years ago, but I still have very vivid memories of just hating most of it. And the reason that I hated most of it was because it just kind of felt really empty and soulless and it just felt like it was Von Trier being Von Trier. And by that... I mean, he was just pissing people off for the sake of it. It's like he had no interest in telling a story that actually had any sort of redeeming arc to it or any personality or any kind of character to it. It was just him brainstorming ways to get people angry. Which, I think, to be fair, from my perspective, he's made an entire career of doing. So, yeah, Breaking the Waves wasn't exactly a favourite of mine. But, having said that... As I said, I've seen it once. That was about eight years ago. Maybe looking at it again now? Possibly. I'm not saying I'm going to. But if I were to go back to it, then maybe I might feel different. I don't know. I do know, however, that I will never, ever, ever change my mind about the second installment of the Golden Hearts trilogy and that is the 1998 film from Von Trier called The Idiots, which was made by an idiot. Which, by the way, is me being as nice as I can about Lars Von Trier, the, the man who made The Idiots. I don't know what he's like as a person. I kind of feel like he is a bit of a dick, but just as the person that made whatever The Idiots is, the nicest thing I can say about him is he's an idiot. I hate this film. I've always hated this film. I've seen this film once. I wish I could actually just erase it from history. I wish I actually had that power because it's that awful. And believe me, I have slept through several buckets of cinematic shite in my time, but nothing has ever just irked me like the idiots. The basic premise is it's a group of people in Copenhagen who live together in a sort of commune, I guess, and pretend to have severe mental disabilities when they're out in public. And also in the house, they just pretend that they have uncontrollable mental disabilities, and there's absolutely zero reason for, for them doing that. There's zero reason for this film to ever exist. It is, without a doubt, the worst film I've ever seen. And bear in mind, I've watched the entirety of Transformers 2. So that's really saying something. Outside of being the undisputed heavyweight champion of just awful, the Idiots was a no, actually, I am actually reluctant to call it a film. The Idiots was a thing that was made primarily using Von Trier's dogma rules that he created and used throughout the 90s, like a filmmaking manifesto that was implemented 
in an effort to make film as an art form as raw and pure as possible. The Ten Commandments, as it were, was the following. Shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. Number two, the sound must never be produced apart from the image or vice versa. Number three, the camera must be handheld. Any movement or mobility attainable in the hand is permitted. Number four, the film must be in colour. Special lighting is not acceptable. Number five, optical work and filters are forbidden. Number six, the film must not contain superficial action. Number seven, temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. Number eight, genre movies are not acceptable. Number nine, the film format must be Academy 35mm. And number 10, the director must not be credited. Genuinely, as a whole, I actually really like the idea behind the Dogma Manifesto. I actually admire the intention behind it. The, the want to strip a layered art form down to its essence by sort of rejecting any sort of support or mechanisms or patchovers or bridges that can really help buffer out and pad a film. I like the idea of putting the restrictions and the limiters and the caps on the creative process and just working and dealing with what you have. I think it's, it's got a lot of potential. But I just think the things he's made using these rules are just awful. So why even bother finishing the trilogy? Why even bother finishing the Golden Hearts trilogy? I, that may be what you're asking. And if that is, then... Yeah, I completely understand, because if I didn't like Breaking the Waves at all, and I just hated the idiots, which I don't know if you've kind of latched onto that yet, but if you haven't, I really do hate that film. Yeah, why finish the trilogy? It's a good question. But this is the thing, as much as I've had bad experiences with those two films, as much as my history personally with Lars von Trier as a filmmaker and as a human being has been... Mm, not great, shall we say. I am of a open mind. I'm willing to give the man a chance. I've heard very polarizing things about Dancer in the Dark. I know a little bit about um, Bjork's um, tormented history, making the film a little bit. We're going to dig a little bit more into the, the making of the film, the behind the scenes stuff and some trivia stuff in a bonus episode. So if you do like the film, or you've enjoyed this episode, this, that, and coming after as a little mini-episode. But again, I digress. Um, yeah, I, I want to keep an open mind. I don't want to write the man off completely, because I do think he has potential. I do think he has a lot of good ideas. I just have not seen him execute them. I just haven't seen him do anything other than just be basically a sadistic dick. <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term. He knows his stuff. He knows his cinematic onions. He knows what he's doing, and that goes both from a technical standpoint, from a cinematic standpoint, and also just from the negative aspect of what I've encountered with his work so far. He knows what he's doing. He knows he's making stuff that is going to get people talking, that is going to get people riled up, and that seems to be his main focus. And I just want to see that change. I just want him to show me that he can do something other than push people's buttons. That he has an interest that is wider than just pissing people off. I want to see him implement his his knowledge. I want to see him implement what he knows, what he can do, and make something that has at least a little bit of substance, a little bit of depth. Something that isn't just solely focused on making people react. It's like a child 
who isn't getting attention and therefore is throwing his toys against the wall and spilling his dinner all over the carpet. That's, in a nutshell, what Von Trier has been to me. He's been that angry, petulant, little snot-nosed baby in his high chair who doesn't like what he's been given to eat or hasn't got enough attention, so he's just smashing his rattle off the side of his high chair, just screaming his lungs out, and has just flipped his little bowl full of, like, mashed apples and bananas, and now it's all over the carpet, and it's stuck in between the fibres, and he loves it because he's made you clean it up. That's who Von Trier has been to me for years and I want a different image I want him to show me he can actually do something that is worthwhile something that is not just designed to piss people off I want him to show me what he's got come on Lars show me what you got yeah that's why I'm doing it that's why I'm going and finishing this trilogy that's why I am looking at Dancer in the Dark for the first time I'm hoping that Lars can actually win me round it's a tough, it's a tough obstacle to overcome considering our history, but I'm hoping, I'm going into this with the open mind that he can. So let's see, let's, let's dive into it. Dancer in the Dark. I'm going to go check it out and then I'll be back to tell you exactly what I think. And I'm, I, I really, really do hope I'm not going to be wasting my time. Oh, there's a good chance I am, but fingers crossed, eh? What is there to see? Alright, so I am back from having watched Dancer in the Dark. And yeah, we have a, a lot to talk about. This is a film that is, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a film that you can talk about for quite a bit. And I really do see why. It has polarized opinions, um, but yeah, let's uh, let's not jump too far ahead. Let's let's go through the film using the five factors of judgment to to break it down. That's what this is all about, right? We're going to break it down using the five factors of judgment, and then when we get to the end, we'll make the ultimate decision: do we keep or do we delete Dancer in the Dark? But as I say, we're going to go through the five factors of judgment, and the first one is going to be narrative. I actually like the storyline that is going through Dancer in the Dark that makes for the, the, the base, the foundation of the film. For those of you who have seen the film, you obviously know that it follows the character of Selma, who is played here by Bjork. Selma is a Czechoslovakian immigrant and a single mother who is now living in the US. She works in some really nondescript factory doing I actually don't really know what it's never really specified but she's working in the factory uh, and trying to make as much money as possible because Selma is slowly but steadily going blind due to a genetic condition that she has some sort of genetic disease um, that her son also has inherited and she wants her son to be prevented from what she's going through she wants her son to maintain his eyesight so she's working as much as possible, saving as much as possible so she can afford an operation for her son to have this, again, nondescript condition rectified so that she can save his eyesight. It's not exactly rife with details or specifics, but it's enough to give you a foundation, a base. It's enough to sort of flesh out a purpose for the character and the film. But admittedly, it does take 
a few moments for their foundation to be set in place. When the film started, I was uh, somewhat confused and somewhat fearful because it just dives straight in with Von Trier's handheld camera style, which we'll talk more about once we get to the aesthetics section. But he dives straight in to the sort of, I guess, escapist part of Selma's character. She loves American musicals, she loves singing, she loves performing. But because the film takes place in a very unglamorous world, it's not like she's doing this on Broadway. She's doing it as part of a amateur dramatics group in what looks like like a village hall, essentially. And when you're first thrown into this without any explanation and you've got the, the shaky handheld style, it kind of looks... And, and for the first five, ten minutes, because it's really kind of goofy as well, it hits the ground running in a really strange, goofy, perplexing way in which you're just watching what looks like home video footage of Bjork meeting up with her friends in in an amateur dramatics group. It kind of looks like a really bad and weird Christopher Guest film about community theatre. And at this point, within the first five, ten minutes... Yeah, I was beginning to question uh, my decision and whether or not I wanted to continue with the film because I just thought, I I really don't know if I've got the patience for this. I'll be honest, within those first five, ten minutes, I really contemplated switching off the film and just, just letting this one slide. But I didn't. I persevered. I kept an open mind. And... Uh, Thankfully, I did. I mean, you have to keep an open mind with this film because really, there are a couple of points which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that's seen a Lars von Trier film, but there are a couple of points within Dancer in the Dark where you have a crossroads. You either just find yourself thinking, oh, okay, I'm done, that's it. Or you are morbidly curious. And weirdly enough, I was actually very firmly in the latter. For me, the first sort of movement of curiosity, we'll call it, was the the sequence in which Selma confides in her friend, and I am using that term very loosely, her friend Bill, about her blindness, about her condition, and what's going on with her. And in turn, Bill confides in Selma about his money troubles and his concerns about his wife and his concerns about his wife being the source of his money troubles, just, you know, presumably she's taking all of his paycheck and spending it on, like, Royal Dalton figurines and commemorative plates. You know, I'm just taking a shot in the dark there. But he's concerned, he's he's unhappy, to say the least. Unhappy's putting it mildly. The man seems like he's just really at the very end of his rope. He seems like his life is not a life. It's like a skinny, beaten, wet dog of an existence. You know those those adverts in which they usually play really sad instrumental music and they just guilt trip you into donating to animal charities by showing you malnourished dogs? It's pretty much Bill's life is one of those adverts. Well, that's how it seems anyway. So he confides his, his miserable existence to Selma. She confides her situation to him. They agree that mum's a word, they're going to keep each other secrets, and this got me interested because it's like, okay, so you are actually applying some sort of character uh, 
progression here. You're looking at the dynamics of a relationship. Lars, this is this is good, Lars. Okay, Lars, you, you're doing good. Keep it going. And then, of course, that uh, friendship. And yeah, we're going we're gonna to use big old fat air quotations around that. That friendship then mutates into a sort of warped chess game of soap opera twists, is how I would describe it off the top of my head. So you have Bill finding out where his money's actually been going. He finds out that his wife has been giving Selma his money. Selma obviously doesn't know it's Bill's money, and there's kind of like a whole financial triangle going on there. And the way that is revealed... <laughs> It's really kind of uncomfortable, and because of the handheld, almost documentarian style, it feels really wrong. It's, like, very dry and just invasive, like, hey, I shouldn't even be watching this voyeuristic fashion. But it works. In fact, all of the weird logic leaps and strange twists work for some reason. And I don't know if it's just because... I was invested in the core foundation of the story of this being a outsider's tale of survival, or if there's just I don't know, there's just something about this film. It just worked, and I can understand why people would switch it off because there are numerous points, as I said, where it's just you reach a crossroads where you either just just walk away or you just keep going down the rabbit hole. And at this point, when Bill finds out that his wife has been giving Selma money. I was I was invested in the soap opera rabbit hole. I was like, okay, where does it go? And then, of course, it does lead, as you would expect, being a Von Trier film, to somewhere really weird and dark and awkward and very, very uncomfortable. I am, of course, talking about the double cross of Selma, the weird frame job, and then the reluctant murder of Bill. Yeah, there's a whole lot happening in that sequence. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Not entirely sure why Bill decides to frame Selma. And I understand he doesn't want his money to just be taken out of his hand. I understand that he maybe feels cheated and, and done over. But really, his beef's not with Selma, it's more with his wife. So rather than, I don't know... Oh, say, I have a conversation with his wife about why she's been stealing money and giving it to Selma. He decides to obviously uh, set Selma up and basically stage a faux robbery, which then, of course, leads to reluctant murder. But not a quick murder, not a quick death, not a quick painless death. It's not like she puts old Yeller out of his misery. It's it's more like she just prolongs his agony. Because her sight is going, she shoots, she misses, she shoots him in non-lethal spots. And the whole thing is really long and drawn out and uncomfortable. And if you have tried to watch this film and you got to this sequence and you were just like, that's it, I'm tapping out, I don't blame you. But, again, morbidly curious. I actually found that as uncomfortable and as awkward, and as, as just unpleasant as this was. I mean, unpleasant is probably the best word to describe this sequence, and probably the whole film, as unpleasant as this was. At this point, I was really on board, and I just wanted to know where we went from here. Of course, we then go to jail time, and then the inevitable death of Selma. 
in what is honestly one of the most stark. And even though you knew it was coming, you know, the minute she starts singing when she's in the gallows and they're trying to get it all set up, you know exactly what's going to happen. But still, when it does, when the floor drops out beneath her and the song is cut off midway, as much as you were anticipating it, as much as you were expecting it, it's still really jarring. It's kind of like knowing someone's going to punch you in the mouth and you're gearing yourself up for it. But just because you were aware of what's coming doesn't mean it doesn't hurt and it doesn't have an effect. And yeah, my God, as, as stark and as drab and as, as harsh and as unpleasant as that end sequence and big parts of the film and its narrative are, I cannot say it's not effective. I cannot say that it doesn't actually make you think. Not just about mortality or about... Uh, the death sentence, the death penalty, but about what it is to to struggle, to try your hardest to, to, to get by and find yourself just overcome by obstacles. And granted, the obstacles within the narrative of Dancer in the Dark are kind of ludicrous, but still, despite or maybe even because of this, the story behind Dancer in the Dark is, for me, unquestionably really effective. One of the things that reinforces this, for me, is, is the aesthetics of the film. Interspersed throughout the harsh and very bleak aspects of the narrative in Dancer in the Dark are these fantastic musical numbers, and, and they really are fantastic. I... I love them. I, I just think the way they are executed and they are sort of implemented into the story is daydreams and really kind of divert and, as I say, contrast from the sort of harsher, unpleasant aspects of the story really makes the film more full-bodied and it kind of adds a little bit of imaginary sparkle and hope into really dire circumstances. And I like the fact that they sort of play off each other and that they sort of intersect with the dire circumstances. The musical numbers, which are the only sequences which actually feature music and, and in essence are the, are the main rule breakers of Von Trier's dogma manifesto within Dancer in the Dark. They are, they're just fantastic. They give you a real insight into the character of of Selma, they kind of make you feel more attached to the character of Selma. But as I say, it's it's the contrast as well. It's it's the balance of of hope against hopelessness. And I just love the way they're made using sort of diegetic sounds found within the world of the film. Whether it's a train on train tracks or one of the machines in the factory that Selma works, Von Trier takes these naturally occurring sounds and then sort of warps them into rhythmic structures for which the musical numbers are then developed upon. It's just, it's really inventive and it's it's kind of believable because you think someone that has a tendency to daydream and who loves musicals would actually imagine this. They would latch onto a sound which is beginning to develop a sort of rhythmic structure and then build a song in their head. And as I say, it's a great gateway into the sort of inner monologue and, and the real personnel core of Selma as a character and 
just, you know, musically and from a vocal performance, they're just executed really well. It's, it's, it's typically Bjork. So if you are not a fan of Bjork, then you probably will hate this. And even if you are, you might not like the way the songs are sort of introduced and interjected into the story. But I just think it was really seamless and it made sense and it just amplified so much and just added to the film in such a way. And yeah, the performances themselves are great musically and vocally. Just as a whole package, I loved the sort of musical interludes. And yeah, if you don't like Bjork, <laughs> you are going to hate this because it is the most Bjork thing I've seen Bjork actually Bjork in some time. I just want to make sure that you fully comprehend what this means. By the way, on a completely unrelated side, well, I suppose it is related because we're talking about Bjork. If you are a fan of the Icelandic icon and uh, you've never seen her explore the back of a TV set, then you really, really need to, because that may be the most Bjork that Bjork has ever and ever will Bjork in her entire Bjorkstance. Yeah. Bjork. Look at this. This looks like a city, like a little model of a city. And all the houses which are here, and streets. This is maybe an elevator to go up, up there. Back to the film, and more significantly, the aesthetics of the film. Musical numbers aside, the the way this film is presented visually is very straightforward, as we kind of covered with Von Trier's Dogma Rules. It is handheld cameras, it's digital cameras, so it is very wibbly, it is very wobbly, and it's kind of shaky all over the place, which in the initial uncertain 10 minutes of the film for me was an issue. I was thinking, oh, can I actually deal with this all the way through? Because there's a lot of quick cuts, there's a lot of quick zooms, there's a lot of just constant motion throughout. In fact, with the exception of the walk towards the gallows at the end of the film and some of the musical numbers, in fact, I think most of, if not all of the musical numbers actually use static shots. Everything else in the film is handheld. So if you really don't like steady cam and you haven't seen the film and you just you feel like you may be a little bit seasick watching it, which I'll, I'll be honest, that was a concern, as I say, within the first 10 minutes. It was a little bit hard to, and actually, no, it extended beyond the 10 minutes. So the handheld thing, I do get it. It's part of Von Trier's manifesto. It's part of his trying to keep it real, as it were, as as pure, as as raw as possible. But yeah, at, at times, the, the handheld aspect and the constant cuts, the constant zooms and the very sort of drab and dreary colour palette of the film didn't really do much for me at all. At times it was a little nauseating, it was a little hard to sort of take, but um, you do kind of acclimatise to it after a little while. There are parts, as I said, in the sequence in which Selma reluctantly murders Bill, which is not a sentence that makes any sense the more I say it, you kind of understand why it works why that particular style works because it does feel voyeuristic it feels uncomfortable it feels to go back to that repeated phrase it feels unpleasant so stylistically yes i kind of see why it works and i understand why it is an effective approach for a film of this this nature 
But uh, yeah, at times, I'm not going to lie, it was challenging. There are times throughout the film where the visual approach actually does work incredibly well. As I said, the walk towards the gallows, there are a few static shots, a few solitary angles, and a bunch of them, if I remember rightly, are, are lower so you get a few low angles as Selma's walking her way towards the gallows. I actually liked that, maybe because it was just a jarring difference. Again, it was an aspect of contrast, or because it just literally put you at a different position within the, the sort of world that you had inhabited. It, it works. It worked for, for all of those reasons, essentially. There's another great sequence visually as well, and it's very fleeting, but it's a, a moment in which Selma is returning home and she's walking across the train tracks. And just the, the look and the sort of visual texture of the film is different. It kind of feels more hazy. From a purely visual standpoint, it looks really nice, but it also kind of creates a sense of atmosphere because you know of Selma's condition and the fact that she's more vulnerable than most. And the, the way that the scene looks, you see this sort of, as I say, this hazy visual in which she's walking out of it has a sort of mercurial atmosphere like the the tone or the action could shift at any second and being a von Trier film it could very well so yeah I like that and I would initially say I would have liked to have seen more of that but on reflection if that had been used more if it had been implemented more kind of like the static shots if that had been more of a constant, then when it happens, it probably would have taken the sting and the effectiveness out of them. So yeah, from an aesthetic standpoint, there are things to really like about Dancer in the Dark, and there are things which are uh, sort of tough to endure. So yeah, a bit of a mixed bag in that section. Which is exactly how I feel about the next factor of judgement, which is performance. So I'm not going to bury the lead here. I did actually really quite like Bjork's performance by the end of the film, but it was a gradient. Uh, yeah, it was a work in progress because at first, during the whole strange, goofy, uh, bad Christopher Guest film about community theatre stage, and for a little bit afterwards, I must admit, I did struggle to to kind of buy into the character of Selma, um, partly because I just didn't know what the hell Bjork was doing with the performance, in particular the accent. Part of it sounded like her natural speaking voice, part of it sounded like some sort of warped AI's interpretation of an Essex girl. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, I just at points it would just slip into this weird mutation and even now I'm not entirely sure what she was going for. You like the movies, don't you? I love the movies. Yeah? I just love the musicals. But isn't it annoying when they do the last song in the films, though? Why? Because you just know when it goes really big and the camera goes, like, out of the roof and you just know it's going to end. <laughs> I hate that. Oh, yeah, no, me too, babe. Oh! <laughs> I honestly have no idea what she was uh, trying to achieve with with the accent, it is all over the place, um, and it was a major struggle at first. It was really funny, and also confusing, and a little bit irritating, 
and that really contributed to that initial, as they say, awkward 10 minutes of like, oh, what am I doing with myself? What have I done? But it's not just the accent. There's, There's like a real flat, unnatural presentation to the character at first and it's not just her character it's it's her son and it's a few other people i mean as you heard there that was bill who selma obviously then goes on to reluctantly murder i just love saying that phrase now just <laughs> a reluctant murder mystery starring bjork oh didn't make a kill him um yeah there's just some really weird unnatural and as i say at times flat performances from a number of the characters especially in the early stages and all of that combined with whatever is coming out of Bjork's mouth, it, it did make it a bit of an uphill struggle. But as the kind of like the film as a whole, as it went on and the deeper we got and the more I just let myself go with it, the more the performance actually really began to strengthen and the more you actually really believed in the character of Selma. And a lot of that comes from Bjork's um, non-verbal acting from the way she holds herself from her body posture to just certain looks the way she holds her head she sort of projects this real and times forlorn and and demure presence about her and and the character you kind of get a real sense of of hardship and struggle and and defeat in certain points with the within the character's sort of trajectory in the final sequences of the film, especially the final sequence, you also see a lot of pain. You see like a lot of just like really excruciating emotional turmoil coming out of her face, and and again her her body language, her posture. Um, yeah, kind of difficult to watch at, at points, but that is a testament to uh, what she's conveying and and how how much her performance sort of expands and progresses and and deepens throughout the film it starts off with this sort of strange goofy anomaly of a character who is just impossible to sort of really put a finger on and then you end up with this this woman who's been through all kinds of hell and emotional torment and you know who clearly loves her son and is is terrified and afraid and just just almost broken yeah, it's 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 in kind of incredible to think how the performance starts and how it ends. It's it is quite quite the journey that Bjork takes us on. But yeah, overall, um very impressed with her performance. Which is more than I can say for the supporting cast. There are a number of players in the film who are very dry and direct and straightforward and actually by sort of being very linear in their performance uh, allow more room for for Bjork's character of Selma to grow and develop and deepen but uh, yeah most of the support in the film isn't great and there are a couple of the characters that narratively don't make sense but also in terms of performance are really kind of hard to figure out so Bill is is kind of one of them and Jeff is the main one, the guy that Selma works with and is a potential love interest. I'm not entirely sure, because I don't know if Jeff is actually menacing or if he's just a really nice guy. Don't know if he's really creepy and is likely to be looking through Selma's windows or if his intentions are pure. Not entirely sure. Don't know what Jeff is meant to be. Don't know who Jeff actually is. Just, just don't know. Full stop. So, yeah. By the end, Bjork's performance great. Everyone else's fair to middling and in some cases it's just really confusing
So, uh, yeah, admittedly, it's going to be difficult to talk about Von Trier's role as, as a director, period, uh, but especially for this film as well. Uh, Von Trier, as a human being, has always, through his actions and, and things he's done and things he said, he's always kind of struck me as a bit of a repugnant pig, I'll be honest. Um, and just, like, the nature of, of some of his films... He's just never really sat well with me uh, as a person. From the things I've heard, the things I know, the things I've seen from his work, just he's always just, to me, been pretty pretty awful for a number of reasons. And I don't know the full extent of it. I don't really know that much about the background of this film. I am going to look into it a little bit more. I'm going to kind of peek behind the the making of this film and look into some trivia, and we might do that as a bonus podcast if if that happens you'll be able to see it on the feed if you are subscribed um if not you should because it helps us out tremendously but yeah i i know the the history behind this film in the sense of, of bjork's claims against von trier and a producer on the film of sexual harassment and it's pretty bad i mean sexual harassment of any degree of any level is pretty bad but just reading some of the things that she's claimed it's just it's really invasive it's really ugly it's really unnecessary and it's just it's just awful essentially so yeah separating the director of Denzel in the dark from the human being who was just being mm, not quite so human is a little bit tricky i kind of think i've encapsulated a lot of the stuff that i like about what he's done as a director for the film in terms of the aesthetic, the, the the way the musical numbers have been put together, and I'm sure that was primarily Bjork, because let's be honest, she's the one with the musical background, so credit is probably more deserving towards her. Again, I don't know that much about the making of the film at all, it's something I'm going to dig into, but just on a limb, I'm going to guess that she and, and maybe somebody else or some other people had more of a hand in actually making the music and the, uh, the the musical pieces in the film, but I do like uh, his his ideas of using, as I said, the sort of diegetic rhythms and turning that. If that is his idea, I don't even know. Um, yeah, just just talking about his role as a director is pretty tricky. Okay, getting back on track. Um, so although it doesn't strictly adhere to all of his dogma manifesto rules, it does implement most of them, and I think this is the best use of them. I think this is the best example of, of his natural and raw approach. Um, although, you know, I could do with quite a bit less of, of the, the wibble-wobble handheld stuff. Uh, I do think it fits this film, as does previously mentioned, the sort of bleak sort of aesthetic and colour palette of it. It kind of fits the sort of harshness and, and the sort of rough, brutal edges and, and sort of texture to the to the themes in the film. Uh, I, I kind of like where he's going with his commentary towards the death penalty, uh, although it's really not expanded upon that much. It's kind of just like scratching the surface. I do kind of like where it's geared towards and the sort of futility of of that. Um, at least that's what my interpretation of it was. Um, but then again, you know, knowing Von Trier, he could be a huge advocate for it. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not going to give him any credit for the performances. Um especially Bjork's performance, if, if what she is claiming is true. And, and honestly, I, in my heart, I really kind of do believe her because it kind of fits um, 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm giving him zero credit for that because if that's... If that's how you coax a performance from uh, somebody, uh, it's it's awful. I've had issues with Hitchcock's uh, method of coaxing performances from particular actresses and, and even Kubrick's handling of Shelley Duvall in The Shining I think is, is pretty shitty for all of the good things that Kubrick obviously did. Yeah, menacing somebody to that point um, with repeated takes of... of Possibly cinema's one of cinema's most stressful scenes. It's 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 not a good look. So yeah, I give I give um, Lars zero credit for the performances here. I, I just whether he wants it, whether in his mind his his behaviour is contributing to to getting that performance out of somebody. I don't care. It's just is is repugnant. It's repulsive, and and it's just it has no place anywhere. On film or off film, um, yeah. And if he's just doing it as, as for his own gratification, that's even. Well, actually, no, I don't know. Neither one's worse. They're both just awful. Anyway, he gets zero credit. All the credit goes to Bjork, who who thoroughly deserves it. But in terms of piecing the film together, this is um, this is the most uh, sort of refined work that he's done I guess would be the word I would probably use pulling it from the top of my head it's the it's the best film that he's done essentially it's the best film that I've seen him put forth it is the the most genuinely thought-provoking it's the it's it's a film that I've not hated so that's a great it's a great start um but it is a film that I can actually stand beside and say yeah, this is actually a really good piece of filmmaking. Although there are issues in it, although there are things that I would like less of, there are things I don't particularly care for in terms of actual filmmaking, in terms of making something that actually uh, provokes feelings and thoughts and can instigate conversation. Um, this is this is without a doubt his his finest hour. It's it's the best thing I've seen him do, which you know is kind of damning with faint praise, I know, but still. Yeah, it is. It is quite easily his his best work that I've seen so far, and is kind of the benchmark for anything I see from him in the future. Which I, I'll be honest, um, I don't know if it's, I'm going to be in in a rush to to catch up on on von Trier's filmography anytime soon. In terms of enjoyment, this is not an enjoyable film. It's not a fun watch. It's not a pleasant watch. It's not entertaining. Well, except for the musical numbers, which are, as as previously mentioned, fantastic. But it's not uh, an enjoyable watch by any means. It's it's pretty tough um, for different reasons at the beginning, and then it's pretty tough throughout the rest of the film for for <laughs> for different reasons. Um, yeah, it's it's not enjoyable. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But it is good, and I say that with a sense of reluctance, but I cannot lie, it is good, it's really good, in fact. It's not something I think I want to watch again anytime soon, or maybe ever, I don't know. Actually, no, maybe at some point I will come back for a second watch, some point way down the line, but yeah, I'm in no hurry to do a repeat viewing, but still, I cannot lie, and I cannot sit here and honestly say... I did not find this to be a really good, well-made, and jarring, effective film, because it is. And I do understand why people will hate this film. It's probably for the same reasons I've hated his previous stuff. 
But yeah, I, I would be lying if, if I said that this was not good. I would also be lying if I said I was going to delete this film because I'm not. It is problematic. It is awkward. It is unpleasant. It has issues. It's by no means perfect. And it's certainly not enjoyable. But it is a really good, provocative film that, that does make you think and make you feel. And there's just, I don't know, is there all that is wrong with it? And there's a few things in there that are wrong with it. I I just I, I went with it and and kind of bought into what Von Trier was trying to do. Which is something I never thought I would ever say. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in a semi state of shock at the minute. Cause yeah, I I within that first five to ten minutes, if I wasn't gonna turn it off, I was thinking, I'm gonna sit through this and I'm gonna hate it. And I didn't. I I found it to be really quite something and it's really kind of hard to put my finger on what that something is but there's yeah there's definitely something about it so yeah dancer in the dark gonna keep so there you go, Dancer in the Dark finds itself kept and placed firmly in the Dimed Out Film Library for the rest of time. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's still surprising to me, but there you go. Hmm. If you have films that are 20 years old this year, because this is, as I say, the first entry in the 20th anniversary of Keep or Delete. Not that we've been doing this for 20 years, I have just been doing it periodically here and there, but... It is concentrating on films from the year 2000. So, yeah, if there's something that was released in that year, the turn of the brand new millennium, that you would like to suggest, maybe it's something that you really hate, or maybe it's something you really love, or maybe it's something that, like me, you haven't seen, but feel like you should have, and want to use this as an excuse to watch it, then send me your suggestions. Get in touch with me at I am Mal Foster over on Twitter. That's I am Mal Foster, you can find me there. Or you can leave your suggestions or recommendations or whatever you want to call them over at facebook.com forward slash dimed out pod. Or if you just, you know, if you're on Facebook right now, fiddling away with your thumbs and fingers on your phone, just go over there and look for dimed out pod and you'll find the uh, Facebook page for this. So you can leave your suggestions there. You can leave whatever you want there as long as it's nice. That's, that's the only rule. You know, don't be an idiot because there's enough of those already. We don't need any more. Also, if you have not subscribed yet, then you can do so because we are now wherever you find podcasts. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, all of that good stuff. We are over in, in every little nook and cranny for catching podcasts. So yeah, wherever you get your podcasts from, just search uh, for, for the show, uh, which presumably you've done already. That would make sense because you're listening to it now. But if you're listening to it on the web, on a browser, then, yeah, you can find us on all mobile platforms pretty much now. And, uh, yeah, if you subscribe and you give us a rating and a review, that helps tremendously, not just with the algorithms, but with my self-esteem as well, which is just as important, if not more. Actually, it probably is, you know, my own mental health is probably better than the popularity of some silly weird thing I've made. I say probably. Definitely. Anyway, the point being is we are available for subscriptions, so go grab them, and that way you never miss an episode. 
Speaking of which, that about does it for this particular one. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've taken something from it. Thank you for listening. Until we meet again, look after yourself and keep it dined out. <laughs> <laughs>